information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. Hey, we're real people who have these experiences. It will be okay. Everything that you hear, this horrible stigma that's associated with STIs, that's really not accurate or representative of most folks' experience. And so then how do we change that? How do we redefine and reclaim that narrative? Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Erin Everett. Hey everybody, and welcome to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett, nurse practitioner. Today, we're going to be having a really special guest on the show, Ms. Janelle Pierce, who is... um, the director, executive director of the STI project, and her one of her main missions is to break the stigma on STDs and STI infections. And I was able to connect with Janelle via Instagram. Um, she has a lot of similar interests as I do, and um, I think she has a lot to, to offer our listeners as far as STD education knowledge and ways to manage your new diagnoses, maybe communicate that with a new sexual partner, and also just breaking the stigma and not letting your STD infection define you. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Miss Janelle. Janelle, go ahead and say hi to our listeners. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. We're so happy to have you. So um, Janelle, why don't you go ahead and start by telling us your full name and preferred pronouns. Yes, so um, my name is Janelle Marie Pierce, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Excellent. And so, obviously, I've had time to poke around your website and all your social media platforms, but for our listeners, can you just briefly highlight any of your specialties and organizations that you represent? Yes. So as you mentioned, um, I'm the executive director of the STI project. We just recently rebranded from the STD project for the last seven years. We were under the STD acronym and now we're the STI project. And um, then also I'm the founder of the Herpes Activists Network, which is called HANDS, and that stands for Herpes Activists networking to dismantle stigma and um, then I'm the spokesperson for positive singles which is a dating site platform and app um, and support network all for folks who have been diagnosed with an STI or STD and then I wear a couple of other hats like I do a lot of freelance writing and um, media and press and, and such but for the most part those are the biggest roles that I play right now. Awesome. And it seems like you've been kind of had your hands busy and full with this since about 2012. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. So almost eight years, I launched the STD project then, but now it's the STI project. Of course, I launched that in April of 2012 alongside STD Awareness Month. So 
Um, yeah, it's almost been a full decade. Pretty quick here. A couple more years. It seems it seems like almost just yesterday. It really yeah. does, doesn't seem like that long. Yeah, well, when you're doing something that you're really passionate about, time tends to fly by. It's true. <laughs> I know it. Yeah, well, we're so thankful. Also, if you wouldn't mind giving us like a little brief personal background, you know, you don't have to go into too much detail about your personal life, but any hobbies, pets or anything like that. I am. I live in Asheville, North Carolina. I have herpes. That's part of like kind of the motivator behind the STI Mm -hmm. project initially. And I'm married and my partner um, is um, pretty awesome. (laughs) I'm like, what do I say about my partner? I don't know. Anyways, so um, my part, I'm married. We've been married for three years and we live here with um, we recently relocated to Asheville, actually. I'm originally from Michigan, the high five state, the land mm-hmm. that's shaped like a hand, and um, otherwise known as the Great Lakes State. But uh, yeah, we have four um, fur babies. We have two dogs, a 75-pound um, pit lab shepherd chow mix. Oh, wow. She's like a hot mess, yes. <laughs> and um, she's three, and then we have a two-and-a-half-year-old rescue who is 95 pounds, and he's a shepherd collie mix, and um, they're both giant babies. And then we have two cats as well, a long-haired and a short-haired cat, and they hate each other. Oh. And so <laughs> it's like antics in the house all the time, plus tumbleweeds of fur balls all over the place like no matter how much I vacuum it's just like a hot mess in this oh, house. I'm sure and we have some fish I just recently relocated rehomed a fish because my stepkids um my husband has three children and two of them brought home fair fish that they won at the fair and this mm. like free quote-unquote fish it grew from two inches to nine inches and we went through three different fish tanks because she just got bigger and bigger and bigger and like kind of all along the line of what we're talking about today it was pretty neat because she got so big that I was able to identify her sex and that she was a she Mm -hmm. because I could see her fishy vulva and like you could actually see when they get big enough you could actually see the vulva on a fish and so my stepkids were like what uh how do you know that it's a she you know like Mm -hmm. who who knows what sex their fish is right and I'm like well she did actually lay eggs at one point in time too of course they didn't get fertilized but that was pretty cool but anyways so cool. yeah I, I had like a sexual health conversation about what <laughs> how, how you tell where her vulva is and then they were like what's a vulva because they had only heard <laughs> vagina so it was like a really awesome conversation and a, a good segue so there you have that's it so that's funny. a little bit of a snapshot into my life <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny how like you know just having a fish then leads you down the trail of having sex education with your stepkids <laughs> yeah. I know it's really I feel like that's in my heart of hearts I feel like that's how those conversations should go the way in which they feel the most organic like as mm-hmm. they just happen throughout 100% you know, agree. when things pop up exactly yeah I mean that's what normalizes it you know as uh you know I know it's a little tangent but growing up it was like so hush hush you didn't have those conversations you know in my experience, me and my friends, I grew up in Australia, and it was, you know, people didn't really talk openly about sex back then, let alone your period. Like, you know, so those conversations were reserved for special times right when your parents maybe thought it was about to happen. So I think it's awesome that you're having those off-the-cuff conversations with your kids. Yeah, I think it's important, especially like, you know, even, I mean, I have the same kind of similar background in that it was like a real conservative kind of my parents were pretty open-minded and pretty like 
they ta- they talked about things probably more than even most parents did, but it's just like nobody even said words that were related to our genitals, you know? Like mm-hmm. nobody even said the word genitals. It was like hoo ha and woo woo and stuff You're like so that. Right. Like, what? I mean, this is not helpful. You right. know, it doesn't empower anyone. It makes you just feel shame right from the get go. Like as a little kid, you're wondering like, why can't I say? my boobs or like my nipples. I mean, any of that. Right. And then on a more serious note, now we're learning that it helps protect kids against child predators to be more open about the actual anatomical names for your body parts. So, Oh yes. the, The autonomy that is, that is afforded to children when you tell them that they are allowed to say no to a hug or Mm -hmm. to a kiss from a family member or somebody who's nearby or close Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, that they don't just have to accept all touch and receive all touch. I mean, all of that is huge because it's like, no wonder folks are confused Mm -hmm. when it's like they're forced to, you know, hug Aunt Gertrude at Christmas time. And then five years later, you know, they, they have to, they're in a situation where they're uncomfortable. Like, no wonder there's some confusion there and no wonder there's a lot of like shame when stuff happens that folks don't feel good about and they feel like it's their own fault when it's not I mean it's just a lack of us being consistent across the board and empowering our youth I mean all of it yeah like steps off soapbox I <laughs> know uh, no no I totally agree with everything you're saying I, I can already tell this is gonna be a fun interview <laughs> so um I mean I'm 100% agreeance with that but of course we could talk an hour for that alone so but what is one other fun fact about you that maybe people don't know about um you know i know obviously you're you're very open and honest in all your blogging and your podcasts and all your press releases but is there anything that maybe people don't know about you that you'd love to share yes i'm like 100 percent an introvert and that's most people don't read that i know yeah and when I meet people in public like I really enjoy social interaction and I love people but that's partially why I like surround myself with animals and I spend I recharge and recoup all my energy in nature and by myself like I the majority of my time it sounds kind of glamorous like oh I'm a sexual health educator and I run this website and Mm -hmm. um, you know I do all these interviews and things like that and like I've been in some big media outlets you know that people are like wow that's just so awesome and you're like you're famous or, you know, like, quote, unquote, friends of mine right. say that because it's like I, they don't know anybody else who's ever been interviewed by, like, Cosmo, for example, or something. But I'm like, it sounds really frou-frou and fancy and things, but the vast majority of my day, just like today, I'm sitting in the clothes that I slept in last night. I love I haven't it. brushed my teeth yet. I'm drinking coffee. I, there's no music, no sound on in my house. It's just, like, silent. The dogs are sleeping around me, and I am just in bliss. Like, I'm super happy without talking to people all day long I actually even like our interview we scheduled you know for today Mm -hmm. and I scheduled all the rest of my phone calls for the week for today so that I don't have to talk to anyone on the phone for the rest of the week (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) I'm an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs yeah I am this spitting exact, like, everything they say about an INTJ is me to a T. It's just nuts to me. It's on a, it's on such a level. So, That's yeah, it's cool. not what people will read because I'm so public and I share things in such a way, but most of the time I'm just hiding in my house. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a really important distinction that you just made because a lot of people see introverts as antisocial, and they're not. They enjoy right. so- to be social, but they also really need their alone time, and they need to refuel, and they can be easily overstimulated by social interaction. 
interaction, not that they dislike it. So I think that's super cool. And we're pretty similar in that regard. Um, I definitely enjoy social interaction, but afterwards I need to return to my cave. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, so much. And that's really the, that's the actual big identifier. I used to show um, to my college students, I teach college classes, I'm an adjunct, and um, I used to show them a 20-minute TED Talk that was like the power of introverts. That was the name of the TED Talk. And it talked about how that is the common misconception. Like, mm-hmm. all my life, basically everything I do around STIs, around now I have a pit bull, like, I'm mm-hmm. basically challenging stigmas and misconceptions in every mm-hmm. facet of my life, but, um, and that's a side note but anyways that's the whole same thing with introversion though it's like it's it's not that folks don't actually want to engage it's where you gather your energy whereas like my mom and dad are extroverts and so they'll get done at a like a get together a family party or whatever and they're like high energy like that was so much fun and yay 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 and even though I will have had fun Mm -hmm. I'm like tired and I don't want to talk anymore yeah (laughs) like you're ready to retreat to your cave yeah yeah, some quiet time yeah do things that you know make you happy too what took you to Asheville? I've, I freaking love that city. I mean, my uh, mom lives in Michigan, and Asheville is just simply amazing. It's so progressive. It is awesome. Oh, thank, thank the stars for Asheville and the community here. I just, I am so relieved to be in this area. I was on the other side of the state for a couple of years. We moved down here initially for to be closer to my husband's family. Like I grew up around my family for 30 years and mm-hmm. um, was in the same area forever and ages. And I'd already always had like this vision that I would move away and explore and try someplace new. But I mm-hmm. think the introvert in me knew better. Like that probably wouldn't happen in the same way that like <laughs> yeah. some folks are just like wanderlust people. And I'm like, nah, yeah. I would rather lust instead of wander and <laughs> <laughs> sit in one place doing that. But Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I always had this vision that I would co- go and explore, like, uh, Denver was someplace that I looked at, and San Francisco, and all of these, of course, super expensive, um, but very progressive places, because in where I grew up in Michigan, which was Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's the second largest city in the state, but it's the conservative of the two, like, yeah. Detroit is the biggest, and that's the least, that's, like, super progressive and liberal and everything, yeah. and, For me, that was tough because I tend to err on the side of, like, very, very progressive, very, very Mm -hmm. liberal, do what you want with yourself, your life, and your body kind of situation. And so um, I was always daydreaming about what would it be like to be in a community like that. So Mm -hmm. we moved down to North Carolina, and it was super cheap to live on the other side of the state. Mm-hmm. So we did that initially, but it was miserable. It was very, very conservative. Oh, yeah. Um, I got called horrible names when I cut my hair and shaved the sides of my head. Oh, I mean, I had some really crazy, like, stuff that you only see on YouTube happen, mm-hmm. you know, where people are, like, taking a video. And you just never think that stuff is going to happen to you, and then it does. And um, it was it was yeah. horrendous, and I was just miserable for two and a half years there. So finally, my husband has family on this side of the state as well. So we had a job opportunity come up. And I can move, as long as I have internet, I can work anywhere. So yeah. I was like, yes, let's get the F out of here. Like, yes. <laughs> I can't I can't take this anymore. Now, Asheville, like you said, it's so cool because it's beautiful, first mm-hmm. of all. And there's lots to do actively. Like, I, we're super active. I like to hike and mm-hmm. kayak and camp and all of that stuff. So it's perfect for that over mm-hmm. here. And secondarily, the community is super progressive. Like, oh, yeah. they have Vino and Volvas, which is a show that one of my friends 
um, over here produces that I'm going to be on the panel this year and like there's just neat stuff going on like one of one of her shows even though it's called Vino and Vino and Volva so hey Heather I'm sending you a shout out I'm gonna have to tag her (laughs) yeah I'm (laughs) definitely gonna have to check this out it's so cool and she always has these experts on her panel and it's always at a brewery because Asheville's filled with breweries and one of her last (laughs) shows was beer and buttholes so the whole show was all about butts and butt sex and butt health and I mean it was just you know there's just that kind of that's this is that's the kind of city that Asheville is where it's like it was packed too that's amazing it was standing room only so So is this like a factual show or is it kind of like comedic relief you know it's it's a little bit of both it's really geared toward being factual like a support of sexual health yeah um but with with an entertainment and also a light side to it Mm -hmm. like yeah, I mean, because even that beer and buttholes, some of her panelists were just funny and just they were talking about a serious subject that's uncomfortable for folks and like somewhat mm-hmm. taboo in a way that was relatable and warm and, and we laughed and we were all nodding and it was yeah. just, it's, it's a cool experience. Yeah, I, yeah, like saying things that people are thinking but not necessarily comfortable talking about. I love it. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, well, it sounds like we need to connect with Heather too because yes, <laughs> this is yes, the kind yes. of thing I'm talking about, you know, it's like this whole exclusively inclusive podcast is supposed to bring people together feel like they can talk about their sexuality you know and while the focus is lgbtq obviously i want cisgendered people and allies to feel comfortable talking about you know whatever makes them normally uncomfortable on the show so all that sounds amazing really cool that's wonderful yeah Uh uh awesome well i guess we should get to the meat of the show because i know the listeners really want to hear from you and so um and you touched on it uh you know briefly about your STD, formerly now STI Project, and your HANDS um, Activist Network. So give us a little bit of an overview of kind of like the work you've been doing and things that you've been doing to kind of create this awareness and break the stigma. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, really, it's all about reframing, dismantling, and reclaiming. So, um, and we do those things through what we call like the three pillars, what I call the three pillars, awareness, education, and acceptance. So first, um, I mean, we're on, of course, we have the website, so you can Google and and search and and, in theory, um, you know, for top ranked, then you can find our our blog posts and things like that. But then we're also on tons of social media channels and I have have a podcast, I'm horrible at it, but (laughs) I'm dabbling in podcasting and YouTubing and all of the things, basically trying to be everywhere as much as possible to open the conversation, to start the conversation, to say like, hey, this is a relevant experience for so many people. So many people contract an infection and feel isolated, entirely alone, and and they don't realize that there are resources, and, and there actually aren't that many resources, so it's not even that they don't... They don't know that there there are tons available and all they have to do is find it. So there are really few resources that are out there that are mm-hmm. talking about STIs from from a more realistic perspective, a more mm-hmm. personal approach. Mm-hmm. And that's where the like the reclaiming the narrative comes from because mm-hmm. there's a lot of great resources out there that are a little bit clinical and dry and they're ne- they're necessary. They're needed. Like um, the American Sexual Health Association or the C D C they've mm-hmm. got tons of information about like symptoms and testing and treatment, all the things that are absolutely applicable and, and we definitely need that out there. But then there are very few resources that are talking about like what does it mean to live with an STI? What does it mean when you contract one? How do you communicate that to a partner? Does this mm-hmm. have to change your sex life and your behavior and your habits and 
mm-hmm. what you're interested in, how does this impact you on a psychological level and a social level, all of those facets are really rarely covered. So that's mm-hmm. really what we're doing and what I do on a daily basis is I do a lot of work around talking about what the experience is really like and not just for myself, right, because um, I'm, I'm cisgendered and heterosexual primarily and um I'm a little on the spectrum too, but I'm married to a, a man and a person who has a penis and he mm-hmm. was a male at birth as well. And so, mm-hmm. um, so his sex matches his birth and his current identity matches his sex at birth and things. So mm-hmm. all of that said, um, my experience is not going to be representative of everyone's experience. So that's right. where like, that's where hands comes in and was, and we still have work to do in, in broadening our, our network and, and, and making it larger and representative of multiple populations and, and marginalized identities and such. And so there are quite a few that are represented by our members now. We have 30 members, um, 30 public activists, and then we're also now this coming year we're adding in and we just had two new organizations join. So now we're adding like organizational bodies, educational institutions, wow. public health clinics and stuff like that. So that's amazing. the intent is to say that uh, if, if folks find me, and I'm glad that they do, but my either my energy, my tone, the messaging, my approach, just who I am doesn't seem to resonate with them, that's totally okay, and it, and it won't with everyone, and that's for sure going to happen. And mm-hmm. so here are all these other resources and people who may be speaking your language, whatever that is, and what, however that means and however that feels to you like a good fit. So mm-hmm. that's really the intention is to not only for me to be doing the work, but to help others and to uplift others who are doing it too so that they can without burnout, so that they can sustainably and that we can continue to um, foster additional activists. And and it's not necessarily the case that even everyone has to be a public advocate. So Mm -hmm. in the hands membership, you can be a private or a public advocate Um, because also it's not safe for everybody to be public about their STI status in the way that I am. And that is not necessary for good activism and for advocacy. So there's like a myriad of 10,567 exactly ways in which you can be an activist (laughs) and I mean and so one of those might be being a public activist like I am Mm -hmm. but there's such a plethora of different ways in which you can help yourself as well as others and it doesn't necessarily mean being being public about it so Mm -hmm. it's all of those things working on trying to say like hey we're real people who have these experiences it will be okay everything that you hear this horrible stigma that's associated with STIs that's really not accurate or representative of most folks' experience and so then how do we change that how do we redefine and reclaim that narrative Mm -hmm. well that's awesome I really that's that's seriously so cool I wanted to circle back a couple things uh, to touch on what you were saying. Coming back to like the diagnoses of an STI. Um, so as a healthcare provider um, in a primary care clinic, I actually, you know, sometimes depending on the day, wonder if I work in an STI clinic. There's a lot of STDs out there, and I'm I'm very open with my patients. I make sure that they feel comfortable talking to me about their sexual practices, their sexual acts, whether they're having sex with penises, vaginas, both toys, whatever, whatever you're doing. It's like, I try to tell them, I'm not asking because I'm nosy. It's I'm asking you because I want to come up with your own tailored sexual health treatment plan and prevention plan. So 
you know, so Janelle walks into my clinic and she tells me who that she's having sex with and what kind of organs they're using and whether they're using toys or this, that, condoms, whatever. So based on what you tell me, I can come up with defense mechanisms to A, prevent you from getting an STI, but also kind of manage what you're talking about which I'm always floored with the amount of shame going on behind the diagnoses of herpes. People are freaked out about a diagnosis, and this is just my experience with my patients. They're freaked out about a diagnosis of gonorrhea and chlamydia, but they know that there's a treatment and it eradicates it. They are really freaked out about diagnoses of herpes and wonder what the lifelong implications are. And so I'm always trying to reassure them, like, listen, pretty much everybody who walks in here has herpes in some form. Because as you probably know, through your research, either your self-research or, you know, other things that you've done, herpes also is very closely related to other types of viral infections. And so I'm never, I'm trying not to test people via serum levels on their blood work because we can check like an HSV-1 and HSV-2 titer. But if someone has never presented with symptoms of herpes, I'm extremely reluctant to do that. And I explained to them, because you might get labeled with a diagnosis you don't actually have. Because those titers aren't 100%. They're not super accurate. They only become accurate about eight weeks after you've presented with symptoms of herpes, which, you know, for people listening who have no idea, I'll briefly summarize. Sometimes the first infection does not actually present with an ulcer or lesion. It might just be like achy, cold flu-like symptoms. Other times, it's a very painful cluster of lesions that are usually fluid-filled, that uh, break open, crust over, and they're extremely painful. They're usually sending you to provider because if you don't know what it is, you're like, wow, this really hurts. So, and that's the distinction between that and syphilis, right? Because syphilis doesn't hurt. Um, but so, you know, I tell patients again, if you haven't had that happen, I really don't want to put this diagnosis on your chart. I care less about your chart. I care more about your mental health because I see the amount of mental anguish people go through with these diagnoses. And so having an STI project like yours, where you're breaking the stigma and re-educating patients to know like, Hey, it's not just you who have this. Let's talk about this and how you can live a healthy lifestyle. Cause for me, it's like when I'm talking to patients, it's no different than, you know, you coming in, for some reason, people f- care less about oral herpes. I'm like, you know what? Turns out herpes does not actually discriminate. So if you contract herpes via oral sex, you can get HSV-1 lesions on your anus, your vagina, or your penis. And it's actually more I... painful. But when I test them on the blood work, they leave feeling better like, oh, they're just fever blisters. Well, it's all just fever blisters, right? It just depends where it's showing up. So, yeah, I find myself constantly connecting people with therapists or other outlets and referrals um, to kind of break their own stigma and, like you said, rewrite the story. But, again, to your point, those resources are like slim pickings. I have a few really good local therapists that can talk to patients about that and alternative types of sex until they feel comfortable having sex with their, quote, new diagnoses. But, um... I think it's really important. I'm so glad that I was able to find you because I'm going to be able to use you as a resource for my patients. So, but yeah, just to, you know, reinforce everything that you said, the, you know, what you're doing, it, few people are doing it. And, you know, like you said, people don't have to necessarily stand up and say, Hey, I have herpes, but you know, if they then can break their own stigma and rewrite the story, then when they do share it with their sexual partner in a much more relaxed, casual way and educate their partners, that's how the domino effect occurs as well. Oh, it's so true. And like, even, even your, you, you're doing the work as well. And that's what's so great about it. It's like, yes, 
a lot of times, you know, people see me as like the face of herpes, this public mm-hmm. kind of facing figure. And and I'm not the face of herpes because herpes doesn't have a face. It like has zero, <laughs> cares zero about what you look like, what mm-hmm. your background is, what kind of sex you're having. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, certain types of activities are going to be um, more susceptible to contracting an infection just sure. because of our biology, just because of how our body is made up and you, where mm-hmm. mucous membranes are housed and things like that. So mm-hmm. like you said, letting first of all, letting folks know that there are tons of people who are walking in. You see herpes all the time. You see STIs all the time. Like, oh my gosh, like this is something I see every single day. Basically, we're, we're, we might as well just be an STI clinic because that's how many there are. Mm-hmm. And even knowing that, that in and of itself is such a relief to folks. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even know if you recognize how much you're helping people by even sharing that small tidbit of information of like, this is such a non-issue. For us, we see this so much because for them, it's like, huge mm-hmm. giant big 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 shattering news yeah yes exactly exactly so i mean and that's great and like even also your conversation it's so great to hear a provider actually doing this well because we've done and i sit on the board of the national coalition for sexual health and we've done um some of our members some of our member organizations have done research around like what the basically that providers are lacking in terms of the kind of communication, the sexual health conversations that they're having, um, the preventative efforts that they're encouraging and or that they're able to mitigate through that conversation and through discovery um, and being able to meet people where they're mm-hmm. at and having that, having that eye-to-eye conversation. And that doesn't feel shameful that it's just factual and practical and helpful and that's just not happening across the board. And even the conversation around like which types of sexual activities folks are engaging in it a lot of times feels very invasive because we're so afraid of talking about our sexual Mm -hmm. health and our sex lives publicly Mm -hmm. or in any kind of fashion out loud whatsoever but really like you said too I mean we even need to know whether you're having oral anal or penetrative Mm -hmm. sex um, if you have a vagina I mean all of those things are relevant because you have to get tested in different locations for different Mm -hmm. infections and people don't realize or recognize like oh no it's not just a simple pee in a cup and you can and then you can capture everything Mm -hmm. if you have an oral infection and you pee in a cup it's not going to discover that so people aren't aware of that necessarily and that just that kind of conversation of like, oh, this is the reason I'm doing this is because or, mm-hmm. you know, I know it takes that small extra step, but I mm-hmm. think it helps reframe it and, and make it to where it feels safer for people to share information that they just feel so worried about. And so so much shame around anyways, which is unfortunate, but it's the reality. So it's like, how do we address this reality and make people help people to feel better about the experience? And like you said, too, being able to chat about it going mm-hmm. forward, does this mean like I want to change behavior or different types of sexual activities for a while while I'm working on it, figuring it out. And it's interesting, too, because you mentioned the being reticent to test folks for herpes. And I think it's twofold and it kind of goes in a circle. It's it's a circular problem in that um, the stigma itself and how pervasive it is, especially Mm -hmm. specifically for herpes, because it's long-term, it's been the butt of all jokes, it's 
it's all on late night comedy. Culturally, right. it's used as a like a shaming tool. Mm-hmm. So because of the way that we treat and how we treat herpes, people are absolutely more petrified of that than even some other infections that could mm-hmm. even be worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, not necessarily worse, but could have longer term ramifications For sure. um, or complications. And even even if they're not worse, they're just whatever. Basically, they could also just be the same mm-hmm. in terms of the implications on our health. And mm-hmm. either way, people are so worried about that specific one, which is making them ask a little bit more, be more persistent about getting tested for it because they want to know whether they have it or not. And they want to make sure that they don't essentially is really the goal there is mm-hmm. they're really hoping that they don't so they can claim that, know that, feel good about it. Yeah, the, the but, whole quote, I'm clean, which I really try not to I <gasps> try encourage patients like, okay, you, just because you don't have herpes doesn't mean you're clean. Did you bathe today? Like, it's not a clean or dirty <laughs> issue here. So, right, yeah. Exactly. And well, and the thing is, too, is even, yeah, just having, the, even getting a full panel test mm-hmm. and having those turn out all negative, you're only getting tested for like four or five infections at yes. max. And there are 30 plus STIs out there. So mm-hmm. the whole clean, dirty dichotomy is one, it doesn't even make any logical sense because hygiene <laughs> has very little, if anything at all, especially in first row countries, to do with the risk of transmitting an STI. And secondarily, the idea of like, oh, if I'm negative for an infection, I'm clean, then that means, then the, it, it assumes then, presumes that then if you're positive for an infection, then you're dirty. So right. we can't do that because that doesn't actually make any logical sense and it's and it's shaming and of course, yes. And as soon as you tell folks that, oh, we don't use clean to describe a negative status because mm-hmm. You can't be. You don't even know if you're negative for everything because everything can't be tested for. And people are like, "Oh yeah." I mean, almost always, I get kind of like a light bulb goes off and they recognize it and say, "Like, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make any sense." Okay, right, right, right. <laughs> I'll change my language, you know. And that one is, and that's actually one of the easier misconceptions to like tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's that whole like the testing is tough for me because on one hand, I totally understand and support anyone who wants to get as much information as possible um but the kind of education that's necessary when someone tests positive for an infection that they've never had symptoms for is complicated because there would need to be follow-up testing Mm because you could have had a false positive correct Um, false negatives are more common than false positives but even so you could still have a false positive and then if you do um it's then you should go back again in three to six months and make sure and then in the meantime you're in this limbo state of well do i or don't i Mm -hmm. and i had potentially this positive and i've never and i don't even know the location that's the Mm -hmm. other caveat is that you could test positive and you're like you said, you know, your fever blister can literally be on the genitals, your anus, or it could be on your lip. And right. I don't know why there's such a big dichotomy between the two of like a good herpes and a bad herpes, because again, that makes zero sense whatsoever. <laughs> but of course, I mean, logically, all this stuff doesn't make sense, but it's so it's emotionally targeted and triggered. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what's happening is the psychological the, the psychological um, impact is because of the concern and what happens socially amongst ourselves, amongst our, amongst one another when this diagnosis happens and what we assume, assumptions based on misconceptions. I mean, it's just this whole large circular problem. And I think actually if we could reduce the stigma significantly mm-hmm. enough, which I don't know if I'll ever see that in my lifetime, to be honest. I mean, there's so much more work to be done and, in, and it's, and it's, it's pervasive across multi-sections. It's 
culturally pervasive and intersectional. So it's not just one thing that we could fix and then it'll mm-hmm. all go away kind of thing. Right. So there's media and there's our educational system and how we view sex in general. There's so much that, you know, impacts it. But if we could really, this is hypothetically speaking, right? But if we could really reduce stigma significantly enough to where people felt about genital herpes the same way they do about oral herpes, mm-hmm. I don't even think anyone would care to get tested anymore. Right. You know, people wouldn't be pressuring and pushing and saying, oh, yes, I really want this test. And yes, right. I know I don't I don't have any symptoms or whatever, but I, I need to know. And there wouldn't be that mm-hmm. concern, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you're right. So, and I never, I, I never want to, um, you know, block someone from getting a test that they want out of their own curiosity. But like, you know, if they've never had symptoms, like you said, there is so much education that goes into that. Like, Okay, you've just added 20 minutes onto our visit because I'm going to go over reasons why I don't love testing for asymptomatic herpes, you know, um, and but if you still want to at the end of this uh, little educational session, then I'm happy to test. But I want you to like report back to me and verbalize your understanding of how these results may or may not impact your life, you know, like, you know, so it's like, you can get tested, but tell me what you're hearing. Yes. Let's (laughs) make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's another angle that I don't know if you've considered. So you'll just have to tell me if you have or haven't. Yeah. Um, and I could see the one thing I do a lot of consultations. I offer consults Mm -hmm. um, for a fee. And then there's, I have like a group as well. That's a lot, a lot more accessible price point too, if you don't want a private consult. But anyways, there's my little, um, there's my little drop there, but that's actually awesome. Yeah, no, I was attention. gonna. I, no, I was gonna ask about that anyway. So the little the point hear. about that, or where that was coming from, where I got originally started thinking about it, is in those consults. A lot of times, it's somebody who has herpes, and it's almost always herpes. I've consulted on molluscum and a couple of other things too. Folks mm-hmm. who have longer term infections, HPV as well. That one's pretty common, but mm-hmm. herpes I get the most because of the stigma and because of how how devastating and traumatic a diagnosis can be understandably and but the but the conversation is almost always the same and it's all along the lines of like okay I have a new partner I either have or haven't disclosed to this partner yet and um I'm really worried about transmitting the infection to them and one of the things I always talk about with them is that and this is something that just a lot of folks aren't aware of is mm-hmm. that if they go and get tested, so say say that, so they would be a person who's asymptomatic walking into your mm-hmm. to your facility, and then if they find out they have either straight or either type, if they have type one or type two, even mm-hmm. if they don't know where the location is, mm-hmm. they are much less likely to contract an infection from an, uh, either a different type or in a different location from that new partner. So mm-hmm. where I'm, what I'm saying is the people who I consult with are always really worried about the disclosure. They're always really worried about transmitting it to a new partner. And one of the things I tell them is one of the things you can do once you disclose to this new partner, if the partner wants to move forward with you and is like considering this, I would ask them to get tested because they may have an asymptomatic infection. Maybe mm-hmm. they have HSV-1 orally from when they were a kid or maybe they have a genital infection hsv1 or two and um and it's just asymptomatic in their carrier and they've had it for years and years and if so then there's a little that changes the conversation a little bit absolutely one of the times where i would encourage um where i do encourage a test a test for an asymptomatic person if they have a partner who they know has it and not because they necessarily think they've contracted it from them 
but because they're curious if their risk is a lot lower because they've already got the antibodies established. Mm -hmm. So it's not all the same antibodies. It depends on which type you have and which strain you have, too. There's actually strains Mm -hmm. of the types, but it does definitely help. And so it's something to know because I think it helps reduce a little bit of the fear, the paranoia, and whatever. And because we know, you and I know, Mm -hmm. and now now everyone who's listening knows that so many people have either an HSV-1 or HSV-2 infection, whether or or genital, mm-hmm. um, it is something that's good to know because that can that can vary that can help alleviate some of the fear, some of the fear of transmitting, and that par- that paranoia of like now I'm the person that they have to watch out for. I'm the monster. I'm like the risk, right. whatever. And then it can also eliminate a little bit or reduce the fear of contracting it from a partner who really is into this person, mm-hmm. but they're also carrying internalized shame and stigma that's associated with STIs and herpes in particular, and so they're just not sure how to move forward. So, yeah, I just think it's good information to know in that scenario, but I hear you. Like, it is. It's a long conversation. I mean, we've been talking about this now for, what, 10 minutes, and yeah. like, we've just barely touched the surface, and, and that would be, you would have to do that with every single person walking in to feel, I feel like, to feel good about what you were providing rather than just handing them a test and giving them some results and saying there's the door right you know you're setting them up for fear and failure and um so in order to even feel good about the service that you're offering yeah you have to add some additional information and and ain't nobody got time for that (laughs) like you've got you've got a a long list i mean and that's part of the problem is our system in general does not provide that time and space to give that thorough education and Mm -hmm. who and I'm not even really sure who the onus you know who where the onus is because is it the healthcare provider's responsibility is it Mm -hmm. is it our 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 public school teachers is Mm -hmm. it parents I mean or is it everyone I mean Mm -hmm. maybe it's a little bit of all but still it's complicated it is well you know it like goes back to the old saying it takes a village so I think it you know it starts in early childhood when you're already talking about um, you know part of the reason why people have that stigma towards genital herpes versus oral is because people are uncomfortable with their genitals. They don't even know the right name for them 90% of the time, like, until they're much older. And, like, even saying the word vagina for some people is like, ugh, I don't like to say that. Can we call it something different? Like, even my adult patients, because I don't see uh, patients under the age of 18, but even my adult patients will say, like, well, down there. I'm like, you're going to have to be more specific. You have a lot of organs below your waist. Are you talking about your toes? Are you having knee pain? You know, it's like, no, well, down there. And it's like, okay, well, your vagina, your scrotum, your penis, your glands, like your prostate, what's going on? You know, because right. so it starts with what we talked about earlier in early childhood. If people feel more comfortable with their genitals and their actual body parts, then they're going to feel more comfortable having these conversations with their sexual partners and their healthcare providers because it's not going to be weird to even mention the word, let alone talk about the health of that organ. Yeah. So, you know, I try to get people to view their, their genitals like their elbow. I'm like, you would have no problem coming in here and telling me you had a rash on your elbow. Yeah, your your penis and your vagina right. is no different. So let's talk yes. about it. <laughs> it's just oh another gosh. piece of you that needs attention. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That needs attention. It does. Oh, and let's give it that attention. <laughs> exactly. The attention because, it deserves. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, and to your point, you know, in order to have a healthy sexual life or relationship with somebody, you also have to be taking care of those organs as well. And like, you know, like you said, we just scratched the surface, but you briefly mentioned HPV. I mean, that can have lifelong 
potentially fatal implications, you know, uh-huh. if people aren't getting their health screenings. So it's important that people, you know, get tested, not just so they can talk to their partner about this potential herpes diagnosis, but also then get vaccinated against other uh, STIs and get uh, routine checkups and get, um, you know, the what they need to get done if they're, they have HPV on their cervix so that they can prevent themselves from getting cancers, you know. That kind right. of thing, or anal HPV, like, it's a whole gamut of issues um, outside of just having that conversation of, like, okay, well, who gave it to me first, you know? Um, you know, so I think your point about the asymptomatic testing is extremely valid, and I think, you know, I've definitely done that for partners before where someone, they've either come in together or separate, and when they've come in separate, they said, you know, well, my girlfriend... Um, we're about to become sexually active. We're newly dating. Um, and you know, I know that she has herpes and she's extremely worried about giving it to me. And so I kind of just want to get tested. And I think, well, that person has done their due diligence and educating themselves and being an advocate in their own healthcare plan, which is freaking awesome. Awesome. Yes. Mm -hmm. But how do we reach people who don't know how to do that? Because I'll happily Mm -hmm. test someone asymptomatically to, so allow partners to have, quote, sex without fear, you know, um, and without shame, you know. Um, but if someone's coming in for routine testing, just like, oh, I just want to know, and they've never had a diagnosis or symptoms before, I'm hesitant to add that diagnosis to their list when they've been asymptomatic before and just so that they can have that other, like, puzzle piece. Um, but, you know, maybe I should be doing that more. Maybe that would help break the stigma, you know. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I yeah. and I empathize with it, and I think it sounds like your approach is pretty holistic, and like you're looking at their situation wholly, and not just blanketing and saying, I don't ever test for this, mm-hmm. or you don't need to know because what you don't know won't hurt you, and right. whatever. I mean, there's some, there's some problematic standpoints that I've heard from practitioners before, which is usually, I mean, anytime we blanket anybody, like, right. like here's a blanket something That's for a large yeah. population is problematic anyways, right? Yeah. So, and I don't hear that that's what you're doing. I think you're really looking at it from a practical perspective, like, is this helpful? Is this information that you really need? Are you wanting it just because you're checking off the box to be able to do Mm -hmm. the whole like I'm clean thing which sometimes (laughs) like I do see that not that I would discourage testing ever but I've seen that whereas like folks will get regularly tested at um you know a public health department or something like that so they're Mm -hmm. getting like three or four of the common chlamydia gonorrhea syphilis and hiv and so four those are four and Mm -hmm. uh sometimes hepatitis is in there but not often Mm -hmm. uh just depends on which system you're in and Mm -hmm. whatever anyways so they get four infections and then they're negative for them and they kind of parade it around Mm -hmm. like on dating apps and things and say like oh yeah i'm clean i tested i don't i don't have anything i just Mm -hmm. went and got tested i get tested every three to six months so here I am and I get to go bebop around and do whatever without any like concern and it's a it's a that's an erroneous kind of viewpoint like it's that Mm -hmm. is not moving the conversation forward in any sort of way and it's missing Mm -hmm. the mark like it's Mm -hmm. missing a lot of actual facts Uh, yeah like you said HPV is a perfect example and I've seen this not to stereotype but I've seen this in more masculine male types Uh um and and that's a a, a product of some toxic masculinity and things and whatever Mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily just that person's fault as an individual it's a product of our culture again but 
that's kind of, I've seen that kind of, you know, what I was talking about of the, oh yeah, I'm clean and I just, I get tested regularly and I just, I don't have anything. I, t- I tested for all the things. I actually spoke on a panel at Florida, Florida, Texas, Florida A&M, Florida A&M, and um, a couple years back for the Know Your Status tour, and there was a rapper who I was on the panel with, and he said, he did this, and I had heard it before, so it made me laugh, and I I called him out right then and there, but he was like, oh yeah, I don't have anything, I'm clean, I, 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 I test regularly, and I was like right there in front of the entire audience, mm-hmm. I said, actually, you don't know that for sure, I said, you know that you're negative for the infections that you were tested for, but HPV, since you're a person with a penis you can't be tested for that (laughs) so you could have hpv and i said it's awesome that you're getting tested regularly like highest of fives and Mm -hmm. you know go for it i mean i think that's wonderful but the way in which you're communicating this now is harmful and you're 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 propagating stereotypes and perpetuating them so Mm-hmm. And of course, like Twitter blew up, like, oh no, she didn't. She just said so and so had an STI. Like, and I'm like, first of all, I didn't say he did. I said it's very possible, very likely. Like, 80 percent of all people by the age of 50 yeah. will contract HPV. And I love that number. Normally, I'm not big like statistics numbers. Throw them out because they don't really resonate with people. But that one is huge and so yeah. huge that I'm like, basically, that means all people. And most people won't know because they'll clear it on their own. But like you said, there can be some harmful effects if it's not caught if there isn't proactive um checkups being done and yeah. things like that yeah because the not so fun fact is that hpv is now starting to take the lead on throat cancers which people that's so far off their radar people get throat yeah. cancer from hpv all the time and it's not like it's happening to people in their 20s and 30s and things like that but i mean it could but yeah. you know um so people aren't talking about it and they're assuming that throat cancer is a result of you know all the issues like tobacco use uh, you know chronic acid reflux things like that but no i mean you know that's why they just recently and i'm not sure if you're aware you probably are but they just recently allowed us to vaccinate people um against hpv up to the age of 45 now now a lot of commercial payers still aren't paying for it um but the more i write it the more they'll start covering it and so i just tell my patients you know like if it's not covered we'll try again next year but if i keep submitting the request for coverage by writing for the vaccine um, or trying to get the vaccine covered, then they're going to have to like fold and start covering it. But oh, I love hearing that. I love hearing that you're trying to do that and, and working in that manner, not just giving up. You know, yes. I mean, ugh. yeah, I yeah, mean, that's I, how, I, you know, that's how we got a lot of, um, uh, you know, transgender medicine, um, you know, hormones and blood work and all that covered. Because when I first started, and I know this is like off the subject a bit, But it's a little relative because when I first started doing HRD and transgender medicine, none of it was covered. And everyone was so afraid to use the gender dysphoria ICD-10 code, which I get. Nobody wants a label on them. However, it was so important for commercial payers because if I'm submitting a request for coverage under like a E34.9, which is endocrine disorder unspecified, then they don't know that I'm taking care of a gender diverse person or someone in the trans community. So they just think it's some other like unspecified endocrine disorder, which it's not. It's not, it's not a disease process. It's, you know, so it was important to highlight with the F64 codes, there's several of them, um, so that payers knew, okay, well, wow, there's a lot more people out here that need these services than we thought. And so coverage was then expanded. So it goes on for all things, HPV vaccines, you know, um, for a long time, the gonorrhea and chlamydia um, 
Aptimus swabs that we were using, patients were getting huge bills for because, you know, the payers were like, why are they doing this every three months? Because we need to, you know, yeah, so right, the more we right. do it, the more they're going to cover it, you know, um, you know, sometimes we need to do it more than every three months. That's just for like mm-hmm. the baseline, really. If you're sexually mm-hmm. active with more than one person, even if you are using condoms, I still want you to right. come in at least every three months, you know, right. and who's using condoms for oral sex anyways, like, right. let's just be real. I mean, not that I don't encourage that. And of think course. That's a great idea. And there's you sound exactly like me. You know, like, go for it, you know, like, it's right. so wonderful. But it's not happening. It's not happening. I'm like, as your provider, I'm going to definitely encourage you to use these condoms for oral sex. But also, as your provider, I'm going to have a dose of realism. I know you're not going to, so let's Yes. You know, like... Exactly. Please consider it. What a of fresh air, though. I'm sure so many people are so very thankful for you. You know, and even just a little... This is a little sidebar, but even the idea around the hormones being um, only only covered by insurance if they are part of a disease process I also think that that also I mean that could have caused harm mm-hmm. to the folks early on who were who were part of that like who were getting who were getting hormones and who had to have it docked as a disease process like that in and of itself and seeing that paperwork like essentially to not have to it would take a little mental work right. to not say this is being classified as a disease. I'm a disease. This is a problem. Right. You know what I mean? As yeah. opposed to just, this is me and this right. is okay. And this right. is what I need for my health. And that in and of itself, like had so many p- potential implications yeah. to it. Social, sociologically that, yeah. uh, or psychologically that, yeah, that I'm like, thank yeah. goodness and I think that people, Right. And I think people, Providers who were using those codes were trying to be sensitive to the community because they didn't want to label them. You know, of course, with the current administration, which we won't get into, but, you know, there was always that fear of like, well, if my health insurance has that information, I'm labeled and now I could be targeted in other ways. So I think it came from a good place, but it's like, again, sometimes you have to advocate fiercely and kind of like, you know, put yourself out there and um, just to get more coverage. And, you know, sometimes you take two step forward, one step back, and that's just the way progress goes. All right, well, we have touched on some really awesome stuff, but I just wanted to make sure, was there anything else that you wanted to kind of speak freely about, like kind of reach listeners on, or like any final notes that you wanted to highlight or that you found really important to mention? Um, yeah, I guess my last, like... The, the hill that I'm going to die upon is <laughs> that I really want to encourage folks who have an STI, who've been mm-hmm. diagnosed with an STI, um, to be their own advocate. You know, like there are folks like myself who are absolutely like pounding the pavement and doing everything we possibly can educationally and, and on mm-hmm. social media and across the board, wherever we can, to let other people know that one, we exist, and one, we're human and people, and nothing is different from us than from anybody else, and so on and so forth. But I just think it's so easy to get wrapped up and lost in the mindset like now I am the risk I'm the problem I'm the thing that everybody is worried about and that people are trying to avoid or concerned and like the monster of society mm-hmm. and then we get stuck in that head and I, I can say that just from personal anecdote experience that mm-hmm. I was there for many many years mm-hmm. and we forget to advocate for ourselves and our pleasure and our autonomy our bodies like mm-hmm. what is good for us mm-hmm. and I especially think that that's 
it's when we're when we're talking about potentially disclosing to a new partner and um, and what they're going to think and what that possible rejection might be and if they will if they will want to move forward and if they'll be worried about contracting our infection we forget that we're also susceptible once we have one infection we're more likely to contract another mm-hmm. and our bodies and our health is just as much a priority as our partner's bodies and our partner's health so that conversation is a two way or three or four how, whomever how many mm-hmm. how many ever partners are involved street it goes in all the directions and it's not just a now I have to share this information outwardly and hope that they receive it and want me it's a I also need some information in return to be cognizant of what's going on in my health and body and to be proactive about that as well so I just want to like put that as a final statement of like your pleasure matters and you are still deserving of phenomenal relationships pleasurable relationships and awesome sex and a sex life if that's what you want and Mm -hmm. um, if so then go out and get it right that's awesome yeah that is I couldn't have said it better myself Thank you so much for coming on. I think it's, you know, every time sometimes when you're out here advocating and you think, oh, wow, you know, this is just so daunting. You know, you stumble across fierce people like yourself who are on the same path and want to continue to help the community and whoever they can reach. So it's been super enlightening talking to you. And I really think we could have multiple episodes where uh, you could talk even more about other STDs and other things that you're doing for the community. And it would be amazing. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to come on anytime. Like if your listeners have some follow-up questions too, we can answer them, um, you know, in your in your comments on your social or whatever, you can shoot them over to me and I can help with that. So if absolutely. there's, so I'm sure there's stuff that we, like we barely even touched on certain things. And uh, yeah, no. absolutely. I mean, it's like, it is, it's a complex and in-depth yeah. conversation that a lot of people care a lot about. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. It's my absolute pleasure. You just let me know. I really appreciate that. And so, again, for the listeners, I just want to say a big thank you to Janelle Marie Pierce. And if you have any questions for her, um, you can reach uh, either her herself at her, thestiproject.com. She has all of her contact information and social media platforms listed on her website. We'll also be uh, listing those in the summary for today's podcast episode. But also, if you have any questions for me or anything that you wanted me to ask on your behalf, please feel free to reach out to Erin at exclusivelyinclusivepodcast.com. Thanks again, everyone. And thanks again, Janelle. Uh, Make sure everybody stays fierce. Love everybody. And make sure you're speaking your truth.